Previously on Flying the Line, J.J. O'Donnell loses the race for a historic fourth term as ALPA president to Hank Duffy. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA is pilot-led and staff-supported, and volunteer opportunities for pilot leaders and subject matter experts are at an all-time high. Training is available for many of the positions, so reach out to your MBC leaders and see where you can contribute. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 8, Hank Duffy's Destiny, The Making of an ALPA President, Part 1. Hank Duffy, a 20-year Delta Airlines pilot, became the fifth president of ALPA at a time when someone with the gift of prophecy might have passed it up. Trouble unlike anything ALPA had ever experienced was lurking just over the horizon. By January 1983, when Duffy took office, the full impact of this trouble, the stepchild of deregulation, was about to hit the profession with sledgehammer force. The 1982 brand of bankruptcy was the first blow, but it would not be the last. The cold reality of free market economics, which had spurred ALPA's creation in 1931, was about to return. ALPA members were beginning to realize that their leaders were not just crying wolf. Hank Duffy's election stemmed in large part from the feeling that he would deal more effectively with the transition to an unregulated system than J.J. O'Donnell did. The task confronting Duffy was daunting, but with the optimism and self-confidence that were the result of his long and productive ALPA career, he eagerly accepted the mantle of Benke, Sayan, Ruby, and O'Donnell. The fractures that the first successful challenge to an incumbent in ALPA's history had created would have to be healed, and harmony restored in relationships with O'Donnell's supporters. But Duffy was sure of his ability to repair the breach. Owing to the airline's traditional labor harmony, Delta pilots who were active in ALPA were accustomed to success. Whether the Delta pilots' cooperative experience with management could be extended to the industry at large was unknown. For the long term, implementing a Delta-like structure at ALPA National would obviously be Hank Duffy's goal. But for the short term, Duffy's job was to become familiar with ALPA's Washington, D.C. operation, while the rest of ALPA got to know him. Born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1934, as the youngest son of a garage owner who specialized in automotive body repairs, Duffy grew up in a world of machinery, fascinated more with cars than airplanes. An older brother had tried to become a military pilot during World War II, but washed out of flight training. Perhaps that failure discouraged Hank from pursuing aviation. In any case, he was much more interested in a purely military career than one in aviation. Duffy did not fly until after beginning what he thought would be a career in the U.S. Army. An accomplished horn player who attended the University of Miami on a music scholarship, Duffy majored in business and earned an Army commission through the Reserve Officers Training Corps program. Upon graduating in 1956, he wound up in an artillery unit on active duty and entered his aviation career almost by accident. 
In the aftermath of World War II, military aviation became the object of a fierce intra-service tug-of-war. Initially, the newly independent Air Force was supposed to have control of all flying activities. So the Army found itself with virtually no aviation after 1948. The Korean War proved this concept unworkable. The Air Force preferred to concentrate on serious flying, not the kind of mud-on-the-wings flying that the Army needed for close air support. Where helicopters were concerned, the Air Force was so doubtful of this emerging technology that it gave it to the Army. The two services agreed that fixed-wing flying would generally remain the Air Force's prerogative, while the Army would be free to develop rotary-winged aviation. Owing to the needs of the service and the Air Force's indifference, however, over time, the Army regained a fixed-wing capability, which was mostly single-engine. What these shifting military priorities meant for 2nd Lieutenant Duffy was personal opportunity. Eager to succeed as a career Army officer, Duffy volunteered for flight training in the newly reconstituted Army Aviation Branch, which appeared poised for tremendous growth. But Duffy never touched the controls of an airplane until he actually got to primary flight training. So he spent a year as a grunt and then entered Army flight training at Camp Gary in San Marcos, Texas in 1957, earning his Army aviator wings in 1958, and shortly thereafter became qualified in both helicopters and conventional aircraft. Having married his college sweetheart, Duffy was already a settled family man, well-positioned to begin climbing the Army's career ladder. He won routine promotion to first lieutenant and captain, and, upon completion of his three-year tour of duty as reserve officer in 1959, accepted a regular commission, obligating himself for additional years of service. At the time, Duffy fully expected to remain in the Army until retirement. The reality of Army life hit Duffy very soon after he launched his tour of duty as a regular commissioned officer. It involved a good deal of personal hardship, dreary routine, and uninspiring duty, coupled with a long series of absences from his family, which now consisted not only of his wife, but three small daughters as well. Like many other young potential career officers, Hank Duffy discovered that the promise of military life did not measure up to its reality. So after flying on Braniff while on military orders, he thought he would really like to do that, and also applied to Delta. So firm was Duffy's decision to leave the military in 1962 that he dusted off his college business degree and secured a job with the IRS as an accountant. That would have to await his formal release from active duty, but owing to the IRS's need for people with his kind of college background, they were willing to hold the position open for him. By a quirk of fate, Duffy got what he wanted. He would become an airline pilot instead of a government bureaucrat. It wasn't easy, because as a regular instead of a reserve officer, the timing of his departure from the Army was beyond his control. An officer who accepts a regular commission technically serves at the pleasure of the president, with no guaranteed date of release from active duty. Reserve officers, on the other hand, serve for specified periods of time. The Army could take its sweet time releasing Duffy to civilian life, 
making commitment to an airline's training date difficult. None of this was bothering Duffy in early 1962 when he decided to leave the Army. Despite rising Cold War tensions, things were still generally routine, and a peacetime mentality pervaded the military. The Army was actually encouraging young regular officers to get out, owing to an overstaffing problem. The potential for conflict with the Russians in Europe was like a long-running TV show, as were current crises over Berlin, which usually dissipated when the newspapers tired of it. Nothing here to delay Duffy's release from active duty and return to civilian life. The IRS job was secure and waiting for him. The soon-to-be ex-army pilot had pretty well given up on hearing from either Braniff or Delta. Then, at the last minute, Delta came through. The first great wave of mass expansion, brought on by the increasing popularity of jet travel, was upon the airline industry. Delta's managers were among the first to see this new boom as more than a temporary phenomenon, so they started going through their pilot application file, looking for likely prospects. Hank Duffy's name popped up. He had all the qualifications Delta liked for its new hires a college education, southern background, and military training, though Air Force or Navy wings would have made him more desirable. But offsetting this, Duffy had already secured his release from active duty and thus could be assigned to a class. So, Delta hired Frank Duffy in the fall of 1962, and he informed the IRS that they could find somebody else to audit tax returns. But fate is tricky, as he was about to discover. Hank Duffy and his career as an airline pilot were about to be caught in the web of the Cold War's greatest crisis. The October Missile Crisis brought the world to the brink of nuclear war in the fall of 1962, just as Duffy was packing away his army gear. For 13 days, the United States and Russia came eyeball to eyeball over nuclear-capable medium-range missiles the Russians had deployed in Cuba, just 90 miles from Florida. The career preferences of a young, soon-to-be ex-army aviator clearly took lower priority than dealing with the prospect of nuclear annihilation. Before Duffy could don Delta's uniform and begin flying the line, he would have to do his part in the big buildup of forces in the southeastern United States. His commercial aviation future now on hold, Duffy became a small cog in what was the largest peacetime domestic mobilization in U.S. history. A massive invasion machine pointed directly at Cuba. Duffy found himself preparing for combat. Flying the line would have to wait. A class state to begin training in an airline's program is a perishable commodity and comes with no guarantee that it will be honored once it has passed, national security and reasons of state notwithstanding. An airline's personnel needs are specific to a time and set of circumstances, and Hank Duffy could not be sure that this U.S.-Soviet duel of nerves didn't spell the end of his career as an airline pilot before it even began. But almost as quickly as it erupted, the crisis ended, to all of humanity's collective sigh of relief. One small story among millions in this giant drama was Hank Duffy's, 
who had to fly to the Pentagon, hand-carry his papers through, and fly back in order to make his Atlanta training class date in December 1962. After making his class date, Duffy faced the serious problem of competing with other young pilots who had far more experience in complex aircraft than he did. Delta, like most airlines at that time, hired ex-military pilots whenever possible, and among those with military backgrounds, heavy multi-engine experience was important. Lacking the technical background of his peers, Duffy's success as an airline pilot was by no means assured. Almost all of his contemporaries in school had flown in either the Navy or the Air Force. Army pilots were comparatively rare, and most airlines viewed them as rotary-wing pilots, whose experience was unsuitable for airline purposes. Some old-fashioned chief pilots, who in those days had the final word on hiring, would scoff that helicopters were not really airplanes at all. The fact that some Army pilots, like Hank Duffy, were primarily fixed-wing pilots didn't impress them very much. But Delta's hiring philosophy, which stressed potential and background, meant that a few Army pilots, despite their lack of experience in heavy multi-engine aircraft, would be given a chance to compete. Offered the opportunity, Duffy made the most of it. Although he was apprehensive about what awaited him in Delta's training program, he soon found that he could more than hold his own. Duffy's diligence in training landed him a second officer's slot on DC-6 equipment, thus beginning a rapid rise that would culminate in an extraordinarily early captaincy by traditional airline standards. Just five years after joining Delta, Hank Duffy was a Convair 440 captain, and a year later, he was commanding DC-9s. Duffy's training class brought the first wave of Delta's explosive growth. Assigned seniority number 860 when he began flying the line, Duffy remained a flight engineer for only a year, as advancement at Delta was very fast. This was what turned Hank Duffy into an Alpha militant, at least by Delta's standards. As Delta's rapid growth and Duffy's relatively low seniority elevated him, he found himself in a dispute with management over interpretation of the contract. The way Duffy read the agreement between Alpha and Delta, his upgrading to first officer on smaller equipment entitled him to first officer pay rates when assigned to second officer duties on larger equipment. But management didn't see it that way, and when Duffy, who was barely out of his probationary period, complained about the company's interpretation of the contract, Alpha's local officers in Atlanta refused to back him up. In short, what should have been a routine grievance at any other airline was looked upon as improper, even arrogant behavior at Delta. To understand why labor relations at Delta were so different from other airlines, we must delve a little deeper into the corporate culture and psychology of the airline and its pilots. Next time on Flying the Line, Duffy's time at Delta prepares him for Alpa's top spot. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 8, Part 1, 
of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023, all rights reserved.